So good morning and thank you so much for joining today. Let me, um, we have our um, notifications on for other people who are arriving, so we might hear those as we get going. But um, I'm so happy that um, you are here and that we can get started talking about how to engage your reluctant readers. First, I think that we should introduce ourselves at um, process effect. Let me um, get to There we go. I just needed to make us full screen. Sorry about that. It's eight o'clock on a Saturday and I've been up for a few hours, but it still is um, a little different running a webinar at eight o'clock on Saturday. So at Process Effect, what we want to do, what we exist to do is to help you become the teacher that you want to be for your homeschooled child. That's it. And so this series of webinars is focused just on not this global vision for your homeschool because you can find that lots of places and I'm sure that you have had family meetings and other opportunities to um, discuss and think about and digest all of that. We're here to help you with these micro skills and these small things that are not small things that can transform your teaching and transform your homeschool. And I know that, especially in today's digital age, so many of us are so concerned about um, reading skills and our readers who have the capability and have the um, skill set already developed, but somehow lack that desire. Or if they do sit down to read, they don't really know how to remember or recall or digest what they've read. And so today's session is all about that. Before we get into the tips, maybe we should talk about why we read. There are three intrinsic motivations to read, and this is um, most of what I'm sharing today comes from um, research articles, and those will all be posted to our website afterward, along with the tip sheets and the slide deck and the recordings. The recordings will always come in two forms. You'll get the full video of the presentation, including this, the slides. And then also I'll make it available as an audio file if you want to listen to it on your computer or in iTunes. So there are three intrinsic motivations for reading. The first is involvement. And <clears throat> excuse me, and some of this involvement is almost like it is when you're a part of the cosmos of information. Reading helps you focus by becoming involved one-to-one -one with all of this information in one tiny, deep slice. And so the research says that involvement means being fully engaged in a book or fully engaged in a text. So if you've ever been reading and you find yourself just lost in it and somebody comes by and says, hey, you know, what are you doing? And you just have to sort of shake yourself because you're not in the room anymore. You're in the book. Um, that's what the research means by involvement. And it could be that you've seen your children do this before and they can do this at any level. They don't have to be reading a 
Jane Austen novel <laughs> or even Harry Potter, they can do this in a children's book as well. But if you've ever seen your children lost in something, then they already have that emotional and psychological attachment to text and to stories and to ideas that we want. And then all we have to do is call them back to that um, with tips that we'll share later. But if you haven't seen your, your child lost in it, in the way that you see them sometimes lost in a game or lost in something that they're watching, a movie or something they're watching on television, they still do have that involvement and that attachment to some other kind of transportive experience, and we can bring that back to reading. Involvement includes a sort of emotional engagement with the text. And this is not the sort of emotional engagement they have with other people. It's an emotional engagement where they're able to find themselves and find their brains really living in this other world. So it can be a fictional world they're reading about. It can be a Bible story they're reading about. They can read about, <clears throat> excuse me, they can read about, you know, crossing the Red Sea or living off of manna every day and be emotionally attached, attached to that moment and emotionally involved so that they, they really understand it on a deeper level. Involvement also means interest-led enjoyment. And I just wrote about this on the blog about my own children when they were younger, how we wanted them to have interest-led experiences instead of telling them what to be interested in. Of course, sometimes you do need to lead the interest. But that interest-led enjoyment, when they just want to sit in a, in a corner, or they just want to sit in their room with a pile of books and read about their thing and find this next piece of information that they'll love, that's what involvement means. The second intrinsic motivator for reading is curiosity. You know, if you've ever watched any kind of animal, one of the defining factors of, of anything that is animated and can move is its curiosity. An ant wants to go on a straight line and perform its work from point A to point B, right? But a lot of other animals, if you have a dog or a cat at home, they're endlessly curious. This is why when you leave um, them alone for a few hours and you come back, things are not as they were. Because even though they live there, they're endlessly curious about the possibilities. And of course, they can do certain things with that curiosity when you're not there. We're the same way, only obviously at a different level. We're endlessly curious. In an information culture like the one that we're living in right now, where so much information is pushed at us, curiosity is something that we have to cultivate all over again, but it is in there waiting. And so how do we build curiosity in learners who might have been bombarded by so much information they've forgotten to be curious? The first is through readings that pique their interests. So if we are doing interest-led curriculum or if you know something that your kid loves more than anything else, throw those readings and books at them. And even if they don't read them when you're around, they'll pick them up when you're not because they're curious, because they're interested in that thing. They're interested in aliens or sports cars or American Girl or whatever it is, and they'll pick the book up when you're not around and let their curious curiosity drive their reading. 
Also, readings that just spark their curiosity. And a lot of titles you'll find at the library are curiosity-sparking titles. So, how to do this, or why did this happen? See, maybe they have some potential interests that they don't know about yet, and so you can get them interested by trying to um, answer those why questions and bring those whys to them along with a little evidence and have them start reading that way. Also, readings that help them learn a new amazing thing. And sometimes it's useful to think, this might be something that they didn't think that you would want them to know. So how to build a fire in the backyard using just rocks and sticks, you know, whatever. Think about something that's kind of amazing and interesting, something about space, some, some new idea that they can't hear about on TV that doesn't come to them through their favorite YouTube channel. They want to know it, but maybe they, they've just never heard of it yet. As soon as they hear about it, they'll want to know and they will be amazed that you want them to know this thing, that you'll let them. And so sometimes it's on this permission-based you know, um, level that you're going to open this little crack and say, you know what? think you might be ready to know about X. And then you open that little crack and whoops, there's a book. You can start learning about it if you want, if you want. And they will jump and leap to that idea. The third intrinsic motivator for reading is socialization. This is not the kind of socialization we're always hearing about in homeschool, but instead the idea to socialize or, or to develop what we call a sociality around reading and around books and around the ideas in books. Because readers want to share what they've read. If they have that level of involvement, if they've satisfied their curiosity with the text, they can hardly wait to tell somebody else about it. Now that other person might not be you. It might be their siblings or their peers when you get to co-op or whatever, but they wanna share that. They want to talk with others about books. They do, readers do, we always have, we still do. Readers want to read what their peers read. And so some of it comes from the reader that, oh, I read this thing. Have you read about this thing? Did you know that you can go in the yard and start a fire with that sort of thing? But also when they get to co-op or with the work, they're with other people or even with older siblings, they'll want to see what that person is reading. And that becomes an aspirational thing for them to read what the other people are reading. They hear about it. They might see that book sitting on the table and they want to read that. So how do we do it? You know, how do we get these intrinsic motivators, which we probably already knew about, or you've had an instinctive knowledge about it, and this is what the research shows, how do you get it to happen? The first thing is to return to your goals. I think so many times in our homeschools, especially when you were shopping for curriculum, we become motivated by and driven by, we, we get on the curriculum train. And the curriculum train says, this is what your goals are. This is what you need to read. Here's what you need to do every Thursday. And we do that because that's what the curriculum tells us to do. And so we spend our time trying to map between the di different curriculum products we've purchased and that we're trying to stay committed to because we spend all of that money. We're trying to say, okay, how do I map this on Thursday to that on Thursday and still work in my co-op? And, and we forget what our goals were. What was my goal with my eight-year-old kid? What was my goal 
with my 15-year-old daughter who started to feel a little hesitant in math. What were my goals? And it's very useful to return to your goals. It's easy to be swept away with all the other experts telling you what to do, maybe even me, right? But I'm the one who will say, what is your instinct? What did you want to do when you got started? And if that has changed over time, you need to revisit that goal. What were your goals for your child? If everybody else in the co-op is telling you that their kid has leapt three grade levels in one year and you think, oh, we're, we're behind if we're not doing that, just back up and say, what, what was my set of goals for reading or for anything else with my learner? And write those goals down so that anytime you feel pressured to, to do something else, anytime you feel that you're in the swirl of curriculum desire instead of your own, go back to that page of goals and say, are we doing this? This is our baseline. Is this what we're doing? And keep returning to that. That's the first thing. That's why I listed it first. Always be true to yourself and your own vision for your homeschool. And if you are a Christian homeschool, if you've prayed on it and you think this is what you're led to do, then that's what you return to again and again. Because the world, even the world of Christian homeschoolers will swirl and draw you along with what their goals are. And you have to return to what you are dedicated to doing for your own students. What are your goals with reading? What are your goals for reading? Um, there are four major goals we always have, right? We want our kids to discover something. We want them to be aware of something. If we're having them read in the content areas in our homeschool, we want that knowledge transfer to happen. That's what we call it when somebody reads something about math or science or whatever. Before they do the equations or before they do the experiments, we're saying there's this knowledge stuck in a book. <laughs> and how do we get that knowledge to transfer from the book or from the expert to you, the learner? That's what knowledge transfer means. And then finally, understanding. We just want them to understand something. And so when we're thinking about those goals and how do we get those to happen, we, we need to return to them and say, are we, and pleasure is obviously attached to discovery. Pleasure is attached to awareness. When we learn something new and that knowledge transfer happens, pleasure is there. So pleasure reading is, I don't think, a separate bullet, <laughs> but because it's embedded in everything else, um, but we need to return to those goals we have for reading. Whew. Now, all of that is done. So all this research-based stuff, all of this refocus on your goals. Now let's get to some tips. My first tip, go to the library. I know you already go to the library, but let me suggest something new, especially for your middle school and upper school or high school level kids, anybody over the age of 12. Um, I'm not saying to abandon them to the stacks, but you know what their interests are. And so you can do one of two things when you go to the library. Have a special library trip. Don't tell them this is what you're going to do, but have a special library trip planned in which you already know because you've looked it up or you've already talked to the librarian in advance. And you know which area of the library, and this is in the adult section, 
the adult section doesn't mean everything's rated X. The adult section just means this is not all illustrated, right? But if you have a 12-year-old and up, and let's say they're interested in um, cars, they're interested in um, aliens, they're interested in Egyptians, they're interested in space, find where that area of the library is. And when you go to the library, take your child to that section of the library. Please forgive me if you've already done this, but for some people, this is new information. Take them to that area of the library and say, you know, you look at all of these books. All of these books have your stuff in there. And so why don't you look through these? I'm just going to leave you here for a little bit. Why don't you look through these books and see which one seems most interesting to you? And then when you found that, just sit here and start reading through it. They'll let you sit on the floor in the stacks and we'll come back for you when we're done. And so let them have maybe 20 minutes. And you might think, 20 minutes? Think I can't, you know, but give them time to be alone with the information. And then go get them, and they'll be so excited to show you that book. And the next time you go to the library, they'll know exactly where their area of the library is. It's magic. It's, it's just a magical thing. I've even done this with college students who never knew that there were areas of the library that were just focused on the thing they were interested in. They had no, many, no idea there were so many books uh, available for this small little tiny thing they thought only they and a few people that they had Googled were interested in. So that's magical. If you don't want to do that work or if you would like to have your student build a relationship with the librarians, you can go into the library that day and talk to the librarian or the reference librarian and say, Jennifer is interested in X. Can you please show her where those books are over in the regular adult section? And let the librarian take, um, take the lead. But how do you build an engaged learner? Is This is an interest-led um, reading experience, but this is also a lifelong learning experience. And this is, you know, I can still go to places in the library that are, were mine when I was 12 or that were mine when I was 15. Even though now I have very different interests, I know exactly the number and the letters to find in any library to go no matter how they're, catalog no matter how they're cataloged. The second is create a quiet place for uninterrupted reading. I know that our homeschools can be very hectic places, and readers need a place for uninterrupted reading and not just at the library. This doesn't mean that the whole house has to be calm and quiet for two hours a day so everyone can read, but each um, learner in your home, especially learners 12 and above, when that reading um, attraction might be lost to devices and that's a separate thing that I don't even have in this presentation that's probably a separate webinar that's coming up is how do you manage the distraction of the of the devices um, but you know when that that attraction might well be lost or on the way to being lost we want to make sure that um, we have a place a device free place where people can go with their stacks of books and their notebook and pen if they need to 
and have a quiet place for uninterrupted reading. Um, I have some ideas for um, essential oils that could put them in the mood for it or to help them focus and concentrate. There are also ways that we can um, create nice little reading heavens or heavens, that is what they are, aren't they? Havens at home. But we need a quiet place for uninterrupted reading. Absolutely essential for readers so that they have a distraction-free place. I know that's hard these days, but we have to dedicate ourselves to doing that. We also need to distinguish content reading, like the stuff that's in the curriculum or the stuff that you need to read for history so that we're going to talk about it as a family this week from love reading, the stuff that they love to do, their interest-led stuff. Um, Sometimes, you know, not everything in the curriculum can be interest-led reading. Let's just fake it, face it. Um, there are state requirements. The state requirements say you have to um, educate in these areas, and we want our students to be well-rounded. So we say, you know, there are different subjects that we have to read, and maybe they're not as interested in that. So let's just separate that content reading from the love reading, but always give that love reading a place even though the state might never test on it, et cetera. And let's not try to over-integrate the interest, the, the love reading or the interest-led reading into the curriculum because we don't want to crush the one thing that might be precious to them in their reading lives. I think very frequently I see um, parents who are awesome parents and they want, they're like, you know, they love spaceships. We could just make everything this year about spaceships. And at the end of the year, the kid no longer likes spaceships, not because the natural interest fell away, but because it became a part of all the work. And that's tragic. I've had students who are now college students, well now some of them have graduated from college, who came to me right out of homeschool and they wanted to learn something new and they wanted me to tell them what to be interested in for their research papers, for instance. They didn't want to, I'm like, well, choose something that you like. And they had been so burned out on interest-led curriculum that they, they didn't want to like a new thing on their own. And that's tragic. So just try to distinguish the content reading from the love reading. Also realize that not every subject needs a book or a text-based curriculum. I know a lot of people want to sell you a book on how to be physically active with your student. <laughs> but you know, kids know how to be physically active and you know how to be physically active with them. There's nothing wrong with playing Red Rover in your backyard and calling that your physical activity. You don't need to have a $50 book on how to be active with your kid. So realize, and your, your child certainly doesn't need to read the rules of kickball. Um, in a book in chapter seven. So realize that not every subject needs a book or a text-based curriculum. Your kid doesn't need to read about everything. And that's, that's very important. And right now when everybody is selling curriculum, and I appreciate them and respect them for it, everybody is trying to help you, that's awesome. But you don't need to buy all of it. And your kid doesn't need to read all of it. And there are certain things your child does not need to take a test on. They don't need to read about it so that they associate reading with the test. They, let's try to carve as much of that as we can out of the curriculum and bring back full one-to-one -one interaction and activity instead. 
this goes along the same lines. Rethink the text heaviness of your curriculum. When you're choosing your curriculum every year, even for what you've already purchased, think about how much reading is involved every day. How much reading is involved every week? How much of that is necessary? And how much can be managed in a different way? Especially for your reluctant reader. It could be that you need to take a whole academic year, a whole school year, and focus more on you explaining, on finding um, Khan Academy or other videos, on finding other kind of media um, on finding other experts if you're not expert in everything they need to know and making it more interpersonal instead of um, text-based. Sorry about that. To make it more interpersonal rather than text-based. If you don't like them to have a lot of screen time, then start at your church or at other places, start bringing in these other experts but rethink how text heavy your curriculum is and how much for a reluctant reader you're continuing to, to bang every day away on the thing that they don't want to do. You're trying to develop the love until that love comes back. Try to um, reduce the text heaviness of what you're asking them to do. Same, the same lines. Can you see that I'm trying to brainwash you? Less is more. So if we had to balance things between the content-based um, uh, reading and the love reading, I would always have more love reading. And the content can be managed and delivered um, to your learner in 57 different ways that don't involve them sitting alone with the book to read it so they can take a test. So there are other ways to learn science than reading chapter seven. There are other ways to learn history than reading chapter seven. There's so many materials out there that don't involve a lot of text. Less is more, especially with your reluctant reader. Once their reluctance moment is passed, they will let you know that they want to read more. They will be the people who will pick up the curriculum and start reading that. They'll realize then how much you love them and try to help them pass this moment. You're not trying to do less with the learning. You're trying to maybe do less with reading until their reluctance passes. Also, make sure the curriculum reading is at your child's reading level. Um, if you're downloading a lot of curriculum products and you have an, an awesome opportunity to take that text and throw it into Word or into any other word processing software and test the reading level. And if you have a 12-year-old and the reading level of their science text is fourth or fifth grade, that could be another reason they're reluctant to read it because it seems dumb to them. And so make sure the curriculum reading is at their reading level. There's, I know that a lot of us are returning to some of the texts from previous generations. Test that reading level and make sure that it's something that your child can manage and it's not too accelerated for them. Um, when we're returning to, and so this is a kind of a sidebar on this slide that I created for you, but 
when we're returning to a lot of the 19th century and early 20th century text, realize that the syntactical patterns of those sentences are different. We're attracted to them because it seems very formal in the way that think people used to talk and write. That's true. Those people, a lot of them were coming straight from a Latin um, education and a Latin background and Latin grammatical structures, which we've really veered away from in modern English. And that's, we can argue whether that's good or bad another day, right? But, um, but one of the first things that you need to do if you're going back to a 19th century or early 20th century curriculum is take some sentences from current curriculum and take some sentences from that curriculum and just explain the difference in the way that the sentences are structured. And say, okay, we're going to start reading this, but this is a little different from some of the reading or most of the reading you have done in your life so far. And here's how it's different. Sometimes the things we're attracted to and we love are very difficult for our students and our learners to uh, read and love because we grew up on a different set of syntactical structures and that's how our literacy was formed and our students, even if they know how to scan and read the words, they know how to make meaning of sentences, their essential core literacy is structured differently than ours because theirs was structured on modern English, a lot of media-driven um, English, a lot of passive voice, a lot of careless usage. And so it's difficult for them to instantly drop into these older structures. I love the older structures. I love the older syntax because, of course, it's what I used to love, loved it all my life. But just realize that that's not a reading level issue as much as, as a syntactical and sentence structure issue, but it's something that you need to confront if you're using um, the McGuffey's or any of the other um, uh, inf information curriculum and books from previous generations. Explain the relevance of each reading. When we talk about less is more and trying to make things less text heavy, we also want to make sure that we understand the relevance of each reading. You have to be in each of the readings. Don't just have them read chapter seven if you've never even glanced at it. You need as the teacher to contextualize it and say, okay, this is what we've already learned and this is what we're about to learn. And that's why these you know, three pages you're going to read right here are super important. And when you're there, here's what I want you to focus on. When you're doing content-based instruction and content-based reading, that's the way that you want to contextualize it. To say, here's what you're doing. Here's how it fits in the context of what we've already done. Here's what you should look for. And here's how you'll know when you found it. If you just give them that and say, read these three pages and then do these questions, what's the difference between that and what's happening in the schools already? And what is your role in that reading? And how do you know? Maybe they got all those questions right, but do they understand why the reading was relevant? Or is it just another thing that they associate with, ugh, I hate school because there's all that reading. And one of the reasons that kids don't like reading, and this is going to be teenagers, is it's just they don't understand why it matters. And this continues to college. I see it all the time in my college classes. Students want to know, why did I have to read this? Why do I have to do this? And not because they're being contrary, 
but they have other things to do and they have jam-packed lives and they want to know what the relevance is. Which means, and I already said this, preview everything your students are going to read. This is not for the interest-led and pleasure reading, okay? This is for your academic reading. Preview each reading. There is a lot of content out there that doesn't make a lot of sense, that's not well written, that um, doesn't explicitly help your student understand what you want them to understand in the reading. So it's important for you to preview it. It's not just like sitting them in front of the TV and Sesame Street's going to solve all their problems. You need to preview those readings. And here's just a second note on that. Know what your child is reading. Not to police what they're reading, but to be a knowledge partner. And in some of the curriculum, if there is a difficult or thorny issue involved in some of the readings, or if there's something in there that doesn't really jive with everything else your family believes or everything else you're trying to teach them, you can be a knowledge partner with your child. And instead of shielding it from them, you can say, I wonder why they put this in here. What do you think? Why would this be in here? And how does it relate to everything else? And what do you think will happen next? Try to get them to do predictive um, assessments based on what they've read. Even at the older ages, that's not just something for six-year-olds. And teach reading strategies overtly. Sometimes we think we have to be the magicians and we're just weaving it into what we're doing. But really what we're trying to do also is to remap onto our students' brains you know, how do I do these things? When I hit a difficult text, what, what are my strategies? So teach those overtly. And we'll have a list this coming week of teaching, um, of reading strategies and how you can teach them overtly at the website. So yeah, don't worry, we have those for free. Link reading with writing, and I have an assignment for that at the end of the session today. And we have more sample assignments that will be available for free next week at the website. And so here's a sample assignment, and I call this, you know, assignment sound, whatever. In my own teaching, I call it a learning cycle, when you're going to have different pockets of activity, and they run through a cycle, and they're all meant to, or designed to meet one goal. And this is a deep dive reading and writing learning cycle. So the first thing you do is start with the reading. And even if you have them reading a 20-page chapter, in history, for instance, you can assign a shorter or excerpted part of that longer reading in your curriculum playlist. So let's say I want them to read a whole essay by Emerson. I can take two or three paragraphs out of the Emerson, and sometimes in my work with um, students in middle and high school, I'll take one paragraph from something like Emerson or Thoreau so that they can start to really click into it and then reading the rest of the essay is much easier. Then ask the learner process-based questions, like what is happening? What's happening first, second, third? Like what is the writer actually doing? What do they do first? What do they do second? What do they do third? Ask them these process-based questions. And this is interactive. This is out loud. This is the way Aristotle said that real knowledge transfer happens is voice to voice. Then ask them basic understanding questions. Like, okay, what do you get out of it? What is happening here? And what do you understand him to be saying? What do you understand her to be saying right here? 
And then you can ask the meta-level questions. The meta-level questions is when the reader is thinking about themselves as a reader. And so you can say, okay, um, when you were reading that, what helped you read it? Where were your stumbling blocks? Or where did you find yourself reading better? And what did you do with that sentence to make it work better for you? So meta-level questions are very important because that's when your learner starts to internalize the processes they know are working for them. And when they say it out loud and they recognize it, then that's something that they could reuse. It'll be on recall for them later. Then just on your own, create a couple multiple choice or true false questions, low level ones, but that you remember our goal here is to have a deep reading of this text. So just, you know, for that Emerson paragraph, have X is, is, you know, what Emerson means by blah, blah, blah is blah, 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 true or false. Have a couple little questions like that. And then require a defense of their response. That defense is written. They can't just say true, false, and then move on to the next question. You only gave them a couple questions, and they're the only important questions about that paragraph, right? And then require them to defend their response. True or false? Okay, why? Why did you choose that? And where is the evidence in the text? that shows you that. This is, leads them to the kind of deep reading that we want, that we desperately want them to have. And if they do it in one small paragraph from a longer essay, they will understand so much more in that essay. And if they do it once a week for one reading, you are helping them develop these patterns of comprehension that are perfect for their age and understanding and cognitive levels, but that will stay with them for life. They will approach any new text from any new writer in this same way and start internalizing the questions that you asked them. So a few details. When longer readings are broken into chunks, it's easier to make sure they understand one chunk before moving on. Instead of giving them 10 pages and then at the end they're like, oh gosh, I hated that. I never want to read that guy again, and they don't understand, and they're frustrated. It, give them a small piece first, and then you know they can understand that. Then they get in, and everything else in the reading becomes a miraculous little puzzle to them, and that's what you want. You're sparking that curiosity. Does he do this throughout? Is he using the same metaphor everywhere? But, you know, they, they start thinking differently about the text instead of seeing it as some big thing that's going to break their day. So some first questions, and this is a conversation that you have with your reader. Did you find anything in the reading difficult or confusing? Which parts? And you think, I'm going to lead with a negative question? Yes, lead with a negative question. What did you find most interesting about the reading? If they've already gotten the difficult thing out of the way because you gave them permission to complain about it, then they're going to find the positive thing because your deep dive assignment gave them permission or forced them to find that positive thing too. And do you have any questions before we move on and read the longer text? Your questions model the kind of thinking you want the reader to internalize. I wish all parents could have this on the wall <laughs> everywhere. Your questions model the kind of thinking you want them to internalize. They look to you for structures. 
And if they don't already, do you want them to? They look to you for structures. You're helping to structure the way they think. So don't just put them down in front of a workbook and let the workbook do the work. That's why you paid for it. You are the teacher. And so there needs to be a time every day when you're intentionally setting those structures for your child. No matter what kind of day you're having, there is that time when you're going to ask them questions and those questions will help them structure their thinking when they're 50, when they're 70, and what they're going to do with their own children later. So the work this cycle performs, it breaks a longer reading apart and makes it more accessible. Very important, it surfaces any difficulties your learner has encountered and provides a safe way to share those difficulties. Very important. Another thing that everyone should have on their screen every day, it urges a deeper reading of the text. If we use the cycle with every reading, every big reading, it becomes a part of your learner's reading and comprehension process. They know what to do with every new reading. And after a while, you don't have to teach it anymore. You can just to teach the process. You could just go in and ask them the probative questions, and they will know how to answer because they've been doing it every time. Imagine doing this for years, um, the impact it can have on your kid's comprehension. Yay! <laughs> because we are all about process. We're the process effect. If you're wondering, that's a strange name for a homeschooling support company. Well, everything we do, everything we share with you is about process, just like this. We'll break down what you need and we'll turn it into a process that you can use. Now I'll um, take it off full screen and see if we have um, any questions. And I'll stop recording now.